time when instability was common, when rulers survived only a short time, and the Muslim world was being overrun by enemies, one leader stood out. He stopped the Crusaders and the Mongols, never to let them return. He expanded his kingdom in all directions and built the political, military, economic infrastructure for the empire that would lead the Muslim world up to the modern period. He was born neither an Arab nor a Muslim, but would rule over them. His name was Baybars al-Bandukari, and he is seen as the true founder of the Mamluk Empire. And he is our subject today. So stay tuned. Okay, welcome back. Today we're going to talk about one of the most exciting figures in really the history of all of Islam and definitely in the period of the Mamluk era. This is Baybars al-Bandukari. And like the rest of his Mamluk counterparts, Baybars was a slave. He came from the Kipchak region of Central Asia and specifically it's part of the world that is now today Kazakhstan. And because of his great accomplishments, Kazakhstan is one of the countries that claims Baybars as their own. In fact, uh, the government of Kazakhstan actually funds the restoration of Baybars Mosque, which is in Cairo. And that just shows you how important he was. Well, like uh, many of his peers, Baybar's family was displaced by the Mongol invasions, which was very common at this time. I mean, we've talked about what the Mongols were doing. Well, as they are pushing from Mongolia all the way to Iraq and Syria, they are driving out a lot of tribes before them. And Baybar's people were one of them. And so they fled into the kingdom of Bulgaria at the time, but uh, that didn't work out too well. Actually, the Bulgars turned on them and sold them into slavery. And so he ends up in the Seljuk Sultanate of Turkey. Remember, this is what is left of the once great Seljuk uh, Sultanate. And he was eventually purchased in the large slave market in the city of Sivas, which is in central Turkey today, which was a, really a major source of Mamluk slaves. And this kind of shows how dependent the uh, Ayyubid Empire and later the Mamluk state was on the outside to get their the slaves that you know basically were their army and would become their bureaucracy. Because remember they're located in Egypt in Syria and they're surrounded by other Muslim countries on all sides. And so of course the source of the slaves has to be non-Muslims as we talked about. Uh, so mostly they're coming from Central Asia in what is today Russia, but in order to get from there into Egypt, there are several states in between, and so they become the intermediaries who are selling them. And that origin would follow Baybars all his life. His enemies would try and denigrate him and insult him by saying he was a slave from Central Asia who was bought in a slave market. But anyway... Like uh, many promising Mamluks, he was purchased by a high-ranking Egyptian military figure who was named al-Bundukari, which is where Baybars gets his last name. Uh, the word Bundukari uh, actually means a crossbowman. Uh, Bundukia means a crossbow. Today it means a rifle. And actually a Bunduk is the, um, like the nut that is the pellet that they sh would shoot with the crossbow, and so that's where it comes from. Uh, but anyway, he's not famous actually for shooting a crossbow. That is the, um, the name of the person uh, who he served under. Okay, well anyway, uh, al-Bandukari didn't get to be very famous because the sultan at that time had him arrested and confiscated his slaves, including Baybars. And as we said, this was fairly common. But you can see what happens here. Uh, we talked about how the loyalty is built up in the Mamluk system. You become very loyal to the person who purchased you and who trained you. Uh, but someone like Baybars, okay, his, his boss 
I mean, essentially it was referred to as his father, uh, has been arrested, and now he's property of the sultan. So uh, we shouldn't be surprised that Baybar's loyalty might be a bit shaky, which ends up being important because he assassinates a bunch of people to get his way into the sultanate. Okay, now as we've seen before, we've mentioned this character in our previous episodes, he rose to the top because he was a great warrior. And in fact, it's, it's sometimes amazing uh, how much he did. Remember, he was the leader of the force that stopped the crusade of King Louis of France that had invaded uh, Egypt. Not only that, he captured the King of France. Okay, and he was only really number three in the Bahri regiment of Mamluks. He was still instrumental in the assassination of the first Mamluk Sultan, Abak. And although he was still just a general in the army uh, when the Mongols invaded, he was instrumental in the stopping of the Mongols. So he's already got quite a reputation. Now, Baybars is said to have been physically impressive. And a lot of this may be legend. Uh, one thing he did, he was a very smart guy on a lot of fronts. Uh, he had his own publicist, essentially, uh, who wrote what would become his autobiography, but spread a lot of legends about him. And you know, one of them was an epic poem that takes days to, to recite about the achievements of Baybars. So he, you know, he, he understood PR, and he did a lot to pump up his own image. But anyway, he was said to have been tall, which you would expect of a Mamluk, but he was known to have exceptionally fair skin with blue eyes. And this was said to have set him apart. And he's also said to have eyes that glowed at you, which scholars today think refers to having cataracts. So when you looked at them, there was this shine. And the name Baybars uh, means panther lord or leopard lord, and his, his symbol was a panther. It's not an Arabic word. It's a Turkic word. Okay, so anyway, this is what he's done up to this point. He's already pretty impressive at this time. But in the year 1244, the Ayyubid Sultan, remember we're in the final, final days of the Ayyubid dynasty, which is going to be basically snuffed out by the Mamluks. The Ayyubid Sultan of Aleppo, whose name was Anasser, he agreed to pay tribute to the Mongols and basically became a vassal state of the Mongols. Uh, but And that worked for a while. That kept peace for a while. But as we've seen from the last episode, uh, when the new great Khan, Monkey, um, came into power, he ordered the Ilkhan, Hulago, to resume the conquest of the Muslim territories. And in 1258, remember that very infamous year, he destroyed Baghdad. Well, it's pretty natural. I mean, you're sweeping down from Central Asia through Iraq, through Baghdad. Uh, the next place you're going to hit is Syria. And as is natural, he goes for the great fortress city of Aleppo. Now, if we've seen anything in these episodes, it's that when somebody's down, everybody else wants to get in on the opportunity to kick them. And that is the case here. So the Crusaders are still around. I mean, they haven't won much of anything. They're holding on to this tiny little strip on the coast, and um, their last Crusades have been beaten pretty badly. But they see now that the Muslims are under this huge attack from the Mongols, and they think, hey, this is great for us. So they decide to join with the Mongols. And so we have a Mongol-Frankish alliance. Uh, and when you think of how close the Mongols came to destroying Europe— which they certainly would have if they had the chance. I mean, again, this just shines more light on the really the wonderful religious purity of the Crusaders, which has, I mean, pretty much been destroyed by this point in the in the show. I mean, if I don't think you have any idealism left about them. But this is the next thing they do. They make a, an alliance with the Mongols. And so several Christian states, including Georgia and Armenia, and good old Antioch, which is still around, remember that was the very first one that kicked the whole thing off, they joined forces with the Mongols to attack Syria. Now it seems like the Franks wanted to make an even bigger alliance, but it was the Mongols who actually didn't want to get in too close with the Crusaders, which says, says a lot about how wonderful they were. But anyway, this is going to be really the end of the Ayyubids. Remember, they, they lost Egypt a while ago. Uh, now, they, I mean, they've been holding on as vassals of the Mongols, but now they're under attack and they lose. 
Syria falls. This is the end of the Ayyubid dynasty. Uh, actually, Hulagu uh, keeps the Ayyubid sultan around with him as basically as a pawn, just using him as a symbol, but it's over for the Ayyubids. Now the Mamluks are really in charge. In the coming onslaught of the Mongols gives them the justification to be in charge. And so what we've seen from the Mamluks, they're, you know, pretty ruthless. It's, you know, kill or be killed. Uh, we've seen this image that it's almost like what we think of as like in, in a tribe of lions. You know, if you're tough enough to take on the leader and kill him, then you get to rule. But we have to remember the context. I mean, we've seen that the, the Mongols are sweeping through the Muslim world. We're seeing just the path of destruction that they're leaving. Uh, we've seen what the Crusaders have done. Salah Adin, the you know, the great hope of Islam, his dynasty has been dashed. And here come these guys who, for better or worse, they're your best chance to defend against the Mongols. And so that this is the way they justify it. Hey, we can, we can defend Islam and, you know, we can't be nice about it. We need to be tough. And that's the, absolutely their spirit and they're successful at it. Uh, they will go down in history as the ones who stopped the Mongols. So how do we get there? Well, admittedly, the Mamluks get a lot of lucky breaks. Now, the one thing that can stop a Mongol horde, other than a Japanese typhoon, of course, is the death of the leader. And so when the great Khan dies, uh, pretty much uh, the other Khans have to go back to Mongolia, and they take most of their armies with them for a very important ceremony, which is known as the Koral Tai. But this is where they go to choose the next great Khan. And they take uh, most of the army with them. Hulagu has to stop his onslaught and go back there with his army. Now, this might seem like a big formality that's going on. You know, why did these guys stop the, the conquest for this you know, essentially bureaucratic administrative procedure. But you have to remember, you got the heads of the four Mongol states getting together to choose which one of them gets to be the big boss. And so I think there's a reason why you show up with your entire army locked and loaded and ready to fight. I mean, it's, it's not just, uh, you know, your average uh, smoke-filled room. I think... Um, it's, it's a lot of uh, gut checks and see who, who's the toughest. Uh, and by the way, uh, we're talking about the, the Muslim world here, uh, but this particular event is what saved Europe, uh, absolutely saved Europe from, from destruction. Okay, so in the absence of Hulagu, and we have to acknowledge this in all fairness, I mean, if we're going to be honest here, uh, with what is remaining of the Mongol army that stayed back in Syria, the Mamluks inflict the great battlefield defeat and the Battle of Ain Jalut. Ain Jalut actually means it's uh, Jalut is uh, Goliath. It's the spring of Goliath in Syria in the year 1260. And this is one of the most famous uh, battles of all Muslim history. Uh, because although they defeat a remnant of the Mongol army, the Mongols will never bounce back from this. Okay? And so this is where the Mamluk name really becomes famous. Okay, so in this battle, the leader is the Mamluk Sultan Qutuz at this time, but Baybars was very, very important. I mean, he was a key general, and his performance on the battlefield, by all accounts, seems to be the key in the victory. And remember, of course, though, that Baybars is the one who writes the history. Okay, so when this gets back, uh, Syria, because they, they defeat the Mongols in Syria, and they take over uh, Syria, this now means the Mamluks control really everything that Salah Adin controlled, all of Palestine, Syria, and Egypt, except for the tiny strip that the Crusaders still hold on to. Okay, and so they their reputation at this point just, I mean, goes through the, the stratosphere. And it's more than just a military reputation. You know, imagine if you are a Muslim living in, say, Cairo, and, I mean, you've just heard the, the nightmare stories about the, these Mongols who seem like devils 
coming through and just massacring everything. And here comes this Mamluk army, which goes out and defeats them. I mean, you are certainly going to see this as a, you know, a blessing from God. This is, I mean, this is God's army. And, and that's the way it's perceived. Now, what might have happened if the full army with Hulagu there had met the Mamluks on the battlefield? We will never know. But the fact is the Mamluks get enough street cred for this to win their place in Muslim history. I mean, this is like Waterloo or Gettysburg or the Battle of Midway, anything like that. Now, after this point, what happens is a little bit shady. Supposedly, Baybars was supposed to be appointed the Emir of Aleppo as a reward. And this makes sense. Like he, He's like the big guy in the army. Aleppo has fallen. They've lost their sultan. So, I mean, this, this kind of makes sense that he would get something like this. But Qutuz backs off on it. And he backs off on it for the reason you, you would expect, that he's uh, somewhat wary of Baybar's power. I mean, he knows the way things work in the Mamluk world, and so he doesn't want to give uh, Baybar's too much power. Well... It turned out to be a pretty bad move because what's going to happen is Qutuz will be assassinated and Baybars is generally believed to be responsible for that. Uh, he, he's seen as the ringleader. Okay, so in any case, he was already a hero. I mean, his battlefield reputation in all these battles has been building up, building up, and now he is the leader. So he's like the beacon of hope in, in a Muslim world that is deathly afraid of the Mongols returning. Okay? And, and again, it doesn't help that his biographer, Abdul Zahar, helps to spread his fame. But however we look at it, I mean, the, the actual battlefield victories of Baybars uh, surpass even those of Salahuddin, who is far more famous, particularly in the West. Okay, so anyway, now uh, the nature of power and legitimacy in the Mamluk state is quite a curious thing. Uh, and it sounds to us today something like, you know, from a, a gang culture or from, a, you know, a mafia syndicate or something like that. Uh, and it's, we can kind of forget the fact that despite the very violent nature of rule in the Mamluk world, uh, they actually oversaw great achievements in arts and humanities. It was another uh, flourishing another sort of mini golden age. But there's no doubt that there is a lot of violence in this. And the thing of it is, it's somewhat uh, surprising to us, is that something like Baybar's involvement in an assassination, uh, up to this point, uh, there, there's been plenty of that going on, but it's kind of something you hide. You don't want to be known for it. Uh, in this case, being seen as behind the assassination is actually a good thing. I mean, you want people to think that because that's the way power works in the Mamluk world. If you can take it and hold it, then you deserve it. So that's actually part of his, of, of his street cred, of his rep that he gets. Okay, so how did Mamluk politics work? Well, the, the key to the Mamluk politics were the military factions. And here we're talking about the, the cohort of Mamluks, basically a unit, right? And these are usually the ones who were purchased together and trained together in the same barracks and served under the same commander. And we talked last time about how it was like a family, and they actually used family names, brothers, father for the leader, and so forth. And you had extreme loyalty to your faction. Uh, but there was great danger if you were seen as too weak to lead your faction. Uh, I mean, we want a tough guy in charge of our faction. And, of course, as you imagine, if a faction gets too big and it has too many great warriors, it will split. And this is essentially what happened. Uh, we talked about how in the early days the Bahri regiment, the Bahriya, was the, the dominant unit in the Mamluk state, and that's absolutely true. And Abak, the first sultan, he was the leader of this faction. But it starts to split, and he starts to fear the other Bahri, so it becomes him with his personal 
entourage against the rest of the Bahris, which includes Baybars and Kutos and a bunch of other people. And so a, a faction like this can split. And again, this sounds like some, something more like a gang or a mafia, but we have to remember the context here. I mean, this is all about finding the toughest warriors to rise to the top. So the key leaders in this system were the emirs, and, and we've seen emir normally means a prince, so like a lot of city-states have an emir uh, today, like uh, Qatar has one, uh, Kuwait has an emir, uh, the United Arab Emirates has seven emirs, okay? But here what we're talking about is it's uh, like the level down from the sultan or the khalif, and you're talking primarily about leading generals. They would often be given command of a city, but for them, the more important thing is command of this military unit. And so we're not talking about something here like, say, the United States Army, where you have a centralized promotion system, and somebody like you know, General Patton gets assigned to a unit. Okay, you're going to be uh, in charge of the Third Army, and you get moved around. I mean, the emirs basically bought, trained, and groomed their own unit full of troops. I mean, you made, you made your, your unit. And so it becomes something like a tribe, except that instead of being born into a tribe, the members of this tribe are selected and purchased and weeded out based on their loyalty and their skill. So, I mean, it, they end up being some pretty tough crack units. So how do you become sultan in all of this? Well, the way this happened was through a council of the emirs. Okay, so it, it sounds funny that we can talk at the same time about someone like Baybars being elected by the emirs and also seizing power by assassination. But both are true at the same time. I mean, you can knock off the existing sultan and a lot of them get assassinated. I mean, very few of these sultans die of, of natural causes. Okay, but you're not going to get power unless the rest of the emirs agree to support you if they think that you're tough enough and that it's good for their faction to support you. So over the three centuries of Mamluk rule, a lot of people are going to make the attempt to take over. Uh, a lot of them will succeed in assassinating a sultan, but not be able to take the power themselves. Uh, anyway, uh, in the case of Baybars, though, I mean, he's got all of this going for him. Okay, we know he's seen as being the strongest. He's, I mean seen as the one who leads all these great battlefield victories. He sort of, ha sort of has a lot of popular support. And the fact that he killed Kutuz makes him uh, very qualified. In fact, the, the very powerful emir Aktai during the council is recorded as saying, quote, the first to strike is the most worthy, and we consider him entitled to the throne, end quote. So here's the case. I mean, they're not at all trying to hide the fact that Baybars is responsible for the assassination. In fact, the first one to strike is the one who deserves the job. Uh, it's kind of brutal, but it reflects the world they're living in. Uh, and, and this is part of why the Mamluks defeat the Mongols and survive and don't end up like Baghdad. Well, with Baybars, at least, it turns out to be a good choice. So Baybars will rule for 17 years, which for a Mamluk Sultan is an extremely long period of time. I mean, this is, this is very long. And, uh, you know, we've seen how rapid the turnover has been so far, all of it violent. After him, there's going to be a lot of violent turnover. Uh, some people will seize and lose the sultanate three times in their lives. So here's a guy who, who rules for 17 years uh, when the, the sultans before him were, were gone in a very short period of time. Now, interestingly, Baybars groomed his son, uh, who is a Sayyid Baraka, to be his successor. And uh, Baybars dies of 
somewhat legitimate causes. It's, it's very strange. All the sources agree that he was poisoned, but they all add that the poison wasn't intended for him. He got it accidentally, but that's, I mean, that just shows you how violent this time is. Yeah, you were poisoned, but, you know, you weren't supposed to be, so that's, that's better. Uh, and so his son actually does get to take over after him, and so there is a little bit of stability, but it's not going to last long. However, during the 17 years of Baybar's rule, it's, it's a tr- period of unusual stability, and considering that they're fighting wars constantly during his rule. Uh, so Baybars organizes the Mamluk government and bureaucracy based on the lines of the emirs. And he has a system by which emirs are given ranks based on the number of Mamluks that they could command. So the titles were emir of a thousand, emir of a hundred, emir of forty, emir of ten. Uh, and the Romans, they had similar titles, like the, the word centurion, which is very famous, comes, I mean, obviously from century, which means a hundred, meaning the leader of a hundred, of a hundred men. And just by the way, if you look at those numbers I just listed, okay, uh, they are remarkably similar to the size of the basic units in pretty much any modern army today. About 10 people in a squad, 40 people in a platoon, about a hundred in a, in a company, and a thousand in a battalion task force. Now, this is not to say that they got that from the Mamluks, but I think it reflects the fact of good tactics and what's the ideal size of, a, of an echelon, you know, not too big and not too small. And it also reflects the fact that in the Mamluk army, somewhat like the, the modern, uh, say, American military today, leaders had a fair degree of autonomy, and so they were given certain certain units that could be broken down into smaller units to function somewhat independently, unlike, say, just having thousands of guys in, in a single line making a human wave at the, at the enemy. Okay, and I think this just goes to show the seriousness and the professionalism of the Mamluk forces. I mean, granted, it's a very strange system to us based on slaves, but in terms of what they do on the battlefield, you know, they're pretty serious about this. However, beyond the battlefield, those titles were used for administrative ranks as well. I mean, they did a lot more than fighting. So it doesn't necessarily mean that you have 100 soldiers under you if you're an emir of 100. I mean, that's not what the title means. Like, you you go out and buy 100 soldiers, and now you're an emir of 100, uh, like in a video game or something. That's not what they mean. You get appointed emir of 100, meaning you're allowed to command up to 100, but you also have the equivalent power of someone who does command 100, because a lot of these guys are not commanding soldiers. Just like today, you know, a captain in the army is the rank of one who commands a company of about 100 soldiers, but most captains right now are, are not actually commanding units. Most of them are in staff position, but this means you're, you're that equivalent. So we know, in fact, that there were a lot of Mamluks, appointed emirs, who did not have soldiers under them, or maybe had a very elite unit under them, but they were given a title to show that they were, uh, you know, equal to an emir of a hundred. Uh, for example, two of the Mongols who were captured in the wars were made Mamluks of a hundred, but they were basically advisors on, you know, how to fight against Mongols. Okay, so in terms of the economy, now um, Mamluk commanders had typically been rewarded by being granted pieces of land, which are known as an ikta, and ikta means like a piece, Uh, and this was a grant of an agricultural land from which they could gain the revenue. And this, uh, it sounds a lot like feudalism in Europe, but there are some differences, at least technical differences. The first thing, they didn't own the land, unlike a feudal lord. I mean, the, the land all belonged to the state, it all belonged to the sultan, and this was just a commission, usually for a specified number of years, could be until you died, okay? Uh, because basically the idea of hereditary authority goes against basic Mamluk values. I mean, you have to be bought, you have to earn your way up. We want to buy fresh troops instead of, you know, using the sons of others. So uh, they don't really go for that. 
And secondly, the people who were working the land were not serfs. They were free to come and go. Uh, they didn't have to stay and belong to that ikta. Now, the reality, of course, most of them had very limited options, and so it meant that, I mean, the system was pretty much the same, but technically they were not serfs. But anyway, this thing looks a whole lot like serfdom. Now, this, by the way, had been going on for a long time. Uh, this policy had been going on since the first Turkish warriors were brought into the caliphate by al-Ma'mun and al-Mu'tasim, you remember, way, way back. Uh, and that was because there wasn't enough centralized tax revenue to pay the army. So this was a way to pay them off. And, you know, by the way, and I mean, I understand this is a huge leap here, so I'm not saying it's the exact same thing, but there is a parallel that in much of the world, this kind of thing uh, is still common today, that the military is rewarded with things other than just being paid. They're rewarded with revenue producing assets. You know, for example, in Egypt, which has the largest military in the Arab world, um, the Egyptian army is one of the largest corporations in the Middle East. It owns everything from hotels to casinos to cruise lines, factories, football teams, and of course the senior generals who are the, the investors and owners, they get a lot of revenue from this. And so, I mean, this is not all that unusual. The idea of a military that is completely separate from business and paid only by the taxes of the people, that, that's pretty much a Western innovation, okay? So anyway, Baybars, though, he really extends and organizes this system and, and really strengthens it. Uh, it controls the land grants, and it, it is used to keep the Mamluk emirs in line, to reward some and to punish others, and it keeps the economy growing strong, which the economy does surprisingly well despite the turmoil, the turmoil of the times. Well, despite all the great things that Baybars is doing in terms of administration, uh, he really spends most of his time on military campaigns. And I mean, that's what really strikes us about this guy. I mean, yes, he's, he's a patron of the arts. He's a great political administrative leader. He does a lot from the economy. But this is really a guy who seems to love being in the saddle and love being on the battlefield. I mean, he was bought for it. He was trained for it. Uh, that's how he made his fame. And he seems to have spent pretty much the majority of that 17 years out on the battlefield. I mean, it is said that he covered 24,000 miles. That's basically the circumference of the entire Earth. And remember, he's, he's got an area from Egypt to Syria. So this is all in campaigns going back and forth along that little piece of land. Uh, and he's in, in constant, constant battles. Uh, he inflicts a lot of defeats on smaller Mongol forces, uh, quite a few defeats on the Crusaders. He, he gets rid of the remaining Crusaders' strongholds. He finally captures the city of Antioch, which has been holding out throughout all this. Remember, this was the start of the whole thing. First place the Crusaders captured, the one city they were holding on to throughout it all. Uh, Baybars is the one who reduces that city and takes it over. He captures the Knights Templars' fortress. Uh, in the, the very impressive Croc du Chevalier in Syria, uh, which if you've ever seen it, is, is one of these legendary castles. Uh, it's up, uh, up on a mountain for you know, being seen as impregnable. Uh, it's the home of the Knights Hospitaller. Uh, he captures that. He defeats them. Okay. Um, and so, I mean, basically, he is just racking up this series of victories against all these enemies of the Islamic world that is just, um, you know, not matched by anybody before or after him. Now, as we've said, I mean, Baybars is a fairly ruthless guy. He is not another Salah Hadin, and this is one reason he does not have the fame and is certainly not loved in the in the West the way that Salah Hadin does. So all these places he takes over, uh, he promises them all safety if they surrender. Eh, sometimes they get it, sometimes they don't. 
uh, which is, I mean, at least it's better than the Mongols. You surrender to them, you're, you're going to be massacred every last person in fairly cruel ways. I mean, sometimes, for different reasons, sometimes Baybars honors his pledge, sometimes he doesn't. But this is not all he does. Uh, despite all he's got going on up in the north, in the east, he manages to conquer the kingdom of Nubia, in the south along the Nile. And today, Nubia is uh, what borders um, Egypt and Sudan. Now, this is significant because the Nubians had been one holdout that nobody had was able to capture. They were actually a Christian kingdom uh, down there. And Nubians today still celebrate how they defeated the original Muslim armies way back when, uh, when the, when the uh, original armies came into Egypt and conquered Egypt, uh, they were defeated or at least fought to a standstill and made a truce uh, with the Nubians, which held for 500 years. And this is something they're incredibly proud of. Okay, uh, well, it's finally going to be uh, Baybars who defeats them and brings their kingdom under the control of Egypt. Today, in Nubian culture, the word Mamluk is a very bad insult. Um, okay, I mean, it's like, it's like Nazi or something like that. Okay, N not Arab or anything else, but Mamluk is a very bad word amongst them, and it's because of this. Uh... But the point for our story today is that uh, Baybars is extending the Mamluk territories in all directions. But this is not all he does. Okay, he's also a very shrewd politician. And to the extent he's a religious figure, he's a very clever one. When Baybars hears what happens to the Abbasid Caliphate, you know, Baghdad is destroyed, and remember the... Uh, the caliph was trampled to death. Baybars invites a surviving member of the Abbasid Caliphate, uh, someone that he can make a fairly legitimate claim, uh, has the right to inherit the caliphate from the dead caliph, and is actually a, an uncle of the dead caliph. And so he invites him to Cairo, and Baybars has all the ceremonies proclaiming the new caliph. And, of course, he swears allegiance to the caliph as the ultimate ruler of Islam, which is, of course, pure show. By this time, um, Baybars is definitely in charge. And this, this caliph who's brought to Cairo is nothing but a figurehead. But, of course, the caliph, uh, al-Mustansir is his name, he appoints Baybars as protector of all Muslims. Okay, so if the caliph is technically the legitimate ruler of all Muslims, he appoints Baybars as his undisputed deputy. Okay, this, by the way, gives Baybars control of the holy sites of Mecca and Medina and protection of all the Hajj caravans going to them. So this is very important. Well, a few months after he is crowned, El-Mustansir goes off to lead a military expedition to retake Baghdad. Exactly whose idea this was is still debated among historians. Some say that the caliph was foolhardy and was looking for revenge. Others say Baybars wanted to get rid of him. In any case, of course, they're, I mean, they're going to get wiped out. And so, with him out of the way... Baybars has a 15-year-old, Al-Hakam, made caliph. And Al-Hakam has some distant rela relation to the old caliph, and so Baybars has an impressive lineage drawn up for him by scholars, which may or may not have any re relation to reality, but it proves this is the new uh, Abbasid caliph. And so from that point on, we have technically an Abbasid caliphate uh, being being kept in Cairo. But this is a very useful tool to legitimize Baybars as the ruler of the Muslim world, which we have to remember he's, he really isn't. He's commanding the biggest empire, of course, Egypt, much of Sudan, Syria, Palestine, uh, but there's still others out there. But he is now using this to justify that he is the ruler, the defender of Islam. Well, the problem that Baybars has, though, 
is tied up in this very issue. And that's that lineage is still very important, even if in reality it isn't. As, as we've seen, real rule at this time is based really solely on military power. It's based on the sword, and Baybars is the guy who has that. But the show of having the lineage, of having the legitimacy is very important. Now, Islam, of course, doesn't have the straight father-to-son thing that emerges in Europe, but we've seen pretty much all the, all the rulers have to be part of the same family. They have to come out of a very tight circle. Well, Baybars is a slave. I mean, he was bought in a slave market. So it's not like this would go unnoticed. And so people, people point this out. So the Mongol ruler, Hulagu, took every opportunity in his messages, which were, of course were already threatening and very nasty, to point out that Baybars was just a slave. Okay, and so on his own, Baybars, yeah, he's just a usurper, a slave who took power by killing the other guy and could be dethroned himself by being killed. And that's, I mean, that's the reality, but you don't want to say that. So now he's got this caliph, right, who is technically the successor to the prophet, saying, Baybars is my guy for all of Islam. Okay, well, if you're in the Mamluk Empire, you probably don't need much encouragement to follow Baybars. This is just good. Okay, yeah, our guy, see this? He, he really is the man. Okay, I mean, you got this Mongol horde coming, which is like the worst horror movie you can imagine come to life. Baybars has shown he's the guy who can stop them. I mean, you don't care if he's the son of a stable keeper. Okay, I mean, he's the guy who can do this. Um, and this is the way he presents himself to some audiences. I mean, I'm just the best military guy around, and that's my, that's my legitimacy. But if you're kind of outside on the fringes, then this gives him official legitimacy. And so this is where Baybar's diplomacy comes in. And, and again, he's very shrewd. I mean, we look at everything that this guy is doing. I mean, he's, he's sort of like a, a triathlete. He's not just a, a one-sport guy. He's, yeah, he's great on the battlefield, but he's a great politician. He's a great administrator. And we're going to see he's actually a pretty good diplomat as well. And it may be really Baybar's diplomacy that ultimately saves the Mamluk state. So, how is that? Well, as we mentioned, the Mongol Empire had been divided into four khanates, meaning each one has a khan. And there's one great khan overall. Now, of these four khanates, there's the one in China, which really doesn't come to play in this story. Uh, there's one in Mongolia, okay, uh, but the two that are close to the Mamluks are the Ilkhanet, which we've mentioned. This is the one Hulagu is from. This is the one that uh, essentially is in the area of Khorasan that was destroyed in that horrible slaughter. Uh, Khwarezm uh, has taken over Persia, has taken over Iraq. That's the Ilkhanet. And, and that's the one that definitely intends to come destroy the Mamluks. They've made that very clear. But there's also the Golden Horde, which is in today what is now Russia. Uh, and this is a very famous one, and this is the one that uh, came pretty close to destroying Europe. Okay, now the key thing here, though, is that the leader of the Golden Horde... Um, in the year 1257 was a man named Birkit Khan. He converted to Islam. Uh, supposedly the story is he met a caravan coming from Bukhara. He talked to the people in the caravan and he was converted to Islam. We don't know the, the exact story, but by all accounts, Birkit was a very sincere and devout convert to Islam. And we see that in everything he writes. This seems to be important to him. Well, notice I said 1257 is the year he takes over the Golden Horde. You may re remember that 1258 is the year when Hulagu destroys Baghdad. Well, Burka is said to have gone into a rage and sworn to avenge this grievous offense. Remember, he's, he's a devout Muslim, and Hulagu has not only 
destroyed the capital of Islam, but I mean, he's desecrated it. I mean, he's he's trampled the caliph to death. He's thrown all these books into the river. I mean, he's shown as much disrespect as you can for Islam, and so Burke is is said to have gone into a rage. And this is also the start of these four khanats going from being a federation to basically fighting each other, right? Uh, and so this is going to start a war between the Golden Horde and the Ilkhanate. It's the first inter-Mongol war, and it is essentially the end of the United Mongol Empire. Well, if you are Baybars and you're a smart guy, which he is, you know, your two biggest threats fighting against each other is just great news, okay? Um, so... In about that time, right, in the year uh, 1260, Hulagu returns from the great Kuraltai, which was uh, there to uh, choose the next great Khan, and he's itching to avenge the defeat at Ain Jalut. Remember, Baybars has inflicted this huge legendary defeat on the Mongol forces, but he did it when the Khan was away with the best of his army. So, Hulagu, who has already promised that he's going to destroy the Mamluk state anyway, is itching to avenge this defeat. But as he's getting his forces ready to go back into Syria, this is just at the time that Burqa Khan and his Golden Horde attacks him from the other side and inflicts a major defeat at the Battle of Terek River. So now this is a distraction and it puts the big threat against the Ilkhanate coming from the Golden Horde. And this, of course, buys the Mamluks some breathing room. Even better, in the year 1265, Hulagu dies and he would never be able to avenge this defeat. And of course, things are breaking up now for the Mongol world. And so the great Khan who had ordered Hulagu to conquer the Muslim uh, territories, he's now gone. Okay, so what we see though, Baybar is doing some really shrewd diplomacy. So he keeps up a very uh, intense correspondence with Burqa. And I mean, just lavishes, lavishes praise and brotherhood on him. I mean, the our shared duties as brothers in Islam to defend the Muslim world. And in this uh, regard, having the caliph there to endorse him helps a lot. I mean, he makes big, big um, mileage out of that. You know, having the caliph write, so, you know, Baybars is my guy and Burka Yusra, wonderful. You know, we're so glad you're on our side defending Islam and God is going to reward you and you know, just laying it on really heavy to this guy. Uh, he sends lavish gifts to the Golden Horde. Uh, I mean, we're talking, I mean, huge, huge caravans full of gifts, gold, all kinds of stuff. And, and this is reciprocated. And so the Golden Horde, they send delegations to Cairo, and I mean, they get the five-star treatment. And I mean, it's all a very clever message to say, hey, go, go attack Hulagu, and it works. Now, this is where Baybar's um, reputation is very important because everything he writes about, he stresses his military record in defeating the enemies of Islam. Okay, and you know, the true ruler here in Cairo is the caliph. I'm just a general, but look at all this stuff I've done. You know, obviously, God's on my side. Of course, that's a sham, but it works. And this was the best thing that Baybars could, could have hoped for, getting the Mongols killing each other. Now, of course, Burqa has a lot of other issues against Hulagu. I mean, they're, they're competing for land. They've had battles between them. Uh, there, there's some key resources in northern Persia that he needs that he doesn't have in his territory. Uh, Hulagu is also mad that 
uh, Burqa is uh, selling slaves to the Mamluks. Of course, remember the Mamluks are getting their slaves large, largely from what was Central Asia, but what is Russia today. And so they're coming from this territory of the Golden Horde. And, and, and so Hulugu wants to cut this off. He wants to cut off the military supplies to the guys who defeated him. And, and of course, Burke is not doing this. Now, it's debated by historians because a lot of the letters sent back and forth between Baybars and, and Burke are lost. In fact, what we have a lot is chronicles of the letters. You say, oh, we got you know, this wonderful letter from Burke, and we just love this guy. Uh, so it's hard to de decipher what the actual relationship between them uh, was. We can definitely see in the stuff that Bur uh, Baybars writes to Burka, he addresses him as an equal, a brother, fellow defender of Islam, putting them on an equal footing. Okay, The messages that Burke sends to Baybars, it's not clear whether he looks at it the same way or he sees Baybars more as his vassal. But anyway, it doesn't matter because they're going to spend all their time fighting the same enemy and uh, that's what is important. But this is a key part of the relationship here because, you know, Burke is this very important transitional figure. He's coming from a Mongol culture where, you know, the Mongol Khan is seen as being this divine figure on earth. Now, they have a very different sort of, um, you know, we would call it like a pagan religion. It's much looser, but the, the Khan is seen as, you know, the great ruler, you know, appointed by heaven. And so anyone who's not a Mongol is underneath him. And so the best that any other ruler could hope for would to be a vassal and be a loyal follower of a Khan. But Berke has also accepted Islam. And so you've got this caliph here. So is he seeing himself as equal to Baybars or is he seeing himself still as a Mongol Khan and okay, you can be my vassal? Anyway, it wouldn't it wouldn't matter because events are going to go in the favor of the Mamluks to the point that they will become dominant. Okay, anyway, as far as the Ilkhan goes, they have a very different attitude. After Hulagu dies, he is succeeded by his son Abaka. And the messages that he sends to Baybars are very threatening and make much of his status as a slave. In one message, he says to Baybars, quote, you are a Mamluk and were sold in Sivas. Remember, that's the town of the slave market. How dare you oppose the kings of the earth? And so this is this idea of a Mongol Khan being this divine king uh, with the, the right to rule. And he tells him, you just, just accept you know, what nature has decreed, which is that you submit to us. Okay. In this case, though... Uh, Baybars does not mention his status as a Muslim. In fact, he, what he does is he stresses the fact of, you know, hey, we beat you. You know, we, you know we've kicked your butt so many times. You're coming for another butt whipping? You know, basically, I mean, those are not the words he uses, but they're pretty much as nasty in a 13th century uh, vocabulary. Okay, so anyway, Abaka says in his threatening messages, he says that the only thing that has kept the Mamluks alive is the fighting between the Mongols. Now, it, he means this to show how much stronger we are. Like, you know, you, you're lucky, you just got a break, but I could come kill you if I wanted to. But actually, the reality is that just encourages Baybars to keep up his diplomacy with Burke. Okay, and so um, he does, and he's able to play them off against each other. But uh, Abaka never, never stops being arrogant about this. He says that uh, Baybar should submit and send his children to be educated in the Mongol capital. And this is one of the ways that they kept their subordinates under control, was you basically held their families hostage. Okay, well, anyway... Despite Abaka's disdain for Baybar's slave origins, he would never be able to defeat him. 
1277, Baybars leads an army up into central Turkey, into what was the, again, the Seljuk Sultanate of Rome there. But by this time, this little piece of the Seljuk Empire is totally a vassal of the Mongols. Uh, and like I said, Baybars really gets along. So, I mean, he's defeating the Nubians, you know, down in Sudan. Now he's up in central Turkey. And he had an army of 10,000 men, and it said he expected to meet a Mongol force of 30,000. And he's really upset when it turns out that only 14,000 Mongol and Christian forces come out against him. Uh, the Seljuks were there, uh, but they just stayed out of it. It looks like they wanted to get on the good side of both forces, and whoever won, they were going to join their side. Okay. Anyway, the battle turns out to be much closer than anticipated. And this is because Baybars had a lot of Bedouin auxiliaries in his army, and they, they nearly collapsed at several points. So as always, he is personally riding around the battlefield, always going to the most critical point, rallying the troops. I mean, he's totally in this thing. And eventually he defeats the Mongols, but he gets very, very depressed about this. Uh, the fact that he had 10,000 forces uh, and he had a tough time defeating a force of 14,000 Mongols. I mean, he expected to go out there and crush 30,000. And he's like really upset. And he's so upset that he forbids anyone to celebrate the victory. So this, again, just giving you an idea of, of the kind of guy we're talking about. Well, Baybars returns to Syria uh, Abaka would reoccupy the area, and he slaughters a lot of people. Uh, and it's said that he and his rulers ate the flesh of the Seljuk ruler because he was mad at the Seljuks. Okay, in 1281, Abaka would attempt another invasion of Mamluk Syria, uh, and this time again. Even though the Mongols seemed to be winning, the Mamluk Sultan, who by that time would be Kalawan, personally led an attack and broke the Mongol line. Okay, And this continuous series of defeats that the Mongols have, and always with the personal intervention of the Mamluk ruler, uh, I mean, finally breaks their spirit, and they, they will never get to conquer the Mamluks. And so when Abaka dies, his brother... Uh, becomes the, the Khan Tegruder, and he converts to Islam. He forges an alliance with the Mamluks as well as the Golden Horde, and this is how the Mongol invasion is defeated. Not by the sword, but really by culture, by the, the Islamic religion, but is by Muslim culture. Uh, they will become... Uh, sedentary, they will become, these will become uh, Muslim states, they'll become an integral part of the Muslim world. Uh, relations will actually get uh, very good between them. Commercial relations, the Silk Road will, will have a, a tremendous flourishing, and this is how the Mongol uh, hordes end, basically. Now, the great Arab historian Ibn Khaldun, who we will talk about uh, at length later on, he would write about this in his theory of history. And this is what he saw history doing, how nomadic peoples would conquer, but they would become uh, civilized. They would settle down, and, and eventually the culture is what would defeat them. So this terrible catastrophe of the Mongol invasion actually leads in the long run to the spread of Islam over a greater area and definitely over greater ethnic diversity. Uh, now, whether, whether it was worth it is highly debatable. I mean, the, the destruction, the bitterness still lasts to this day. Uh, but the bottom line is that the, the world of Islam ends up bigger and more powerful and more influential at the end of this. Well, as I mentioned, Baybars died in 1277, and I think it's a sign of his reputation that although he was poisoned, uh, everybody makes a point of saying the poison wasn't meant for him. Remember, this is an environment in which you want to brag about assassinating someone, even if it's by accident, right? Ooh, man, I killed the, the sultan. Man, you know, I'm bad. I'm a bad dude. But this is, Baybars is like the one guy that nobody wants to be seen as killing. And so... 
Ironically, Baybars will not have the fame of Salah Hadin, especially not in the Western world. He's not really well known in the Western world. Uh, he, he's certainly not even celebrated to the same extent as Salah Hadin in the Arab world. And there's a lot of reasons for this. Uh, part of it is because uh, Salah Hadin's reputation is tied not just to his military victories, but to his chivalry and his mercy. And Baybar, as for all we've seen, although uh, despite his great accomplishments, he's pretty hardcore and ruthless. He is a man of the sword. Straight up. But in terms of pure factual comparison, who accomplished what? And who did more for the defense of the Muslim world? If, particularly if we're talking Egypt and Syria, it's just hard to see anybody doing as much as Baybars did. And historians rightly see the period of Baybars' rule as a major turning point in world history. Uh, not just Muslim history, but the history of the world. The fact that the Mongols would be stopped and assimilated into the Muslim world rather than destroying it entirely, has a lot to do with Baybars. And so, for better or worse, it is the Mamluk state that Baybars really creates, more than anyone else, that's going to be the core of that Muslim world for the centuries to come, and, I mean, really right up until the 1800s. And so that Mamluk state will be the focus of our upcoming episodes. So we thank you very much for joining us for this study of Baybars, al-Bandukari. We look forward to seeing you in our next episodes. Thank you so much for your kind attention. Shukran jazilan. Wa ma salamu.